it's Nudie, and you're listening to Reading Books with Nudie. We've been reading A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett for, give or take, a couple weeks. Ever since April 19th? What? Wow! That means this is the seventh week of my podcast. Incredible. Anyway, today we're going to hear the first part of the eighth chapter of our book. There's going to be two. We'll also hear the newest jingle from the Jingle Book by Carolyn Wells. If you're new here, I recommend you go back and listen to past episodes or you might not understand the story. Hey guys, I'm getting more listeners each time I check the statistics. Last Thursday, it was 12 listeners, but only four have written me so far. I hope you'll write me too, and as you know, my email is in the show notes. If you're just too shy, then don't worry, I totally understand. Also, please leave a rating or review wherever you like to get your podcast. It helps more people find it. So let's hear the first part of our eighth chapter. Chapter 8 In the Attic The first night she spent in the attic was a thing Sarah never forgot. During its passing, she lived through a wild, unchildlike woe of which she never spoke to anyone. There was no one who would have understood. It was, indeed, well for her, that as she lay awake in the darkness, her mind was forcibly distracted, now and then, by the strangeness of her surroundings. It was, perhaps, well for her that she was reminded by her small body of material things. If this had not been so, the anguish of her young mind might have been too great for a child to bear. But really, while the night was passing, she scarcely knew that she had a body at all or remembered any other thing than one. My papa is dead, she kept whispering to herself. My papa is dead. It was not until long afterward that she realized that her bed had been so hard that she turned over and over in it to find a place to rest, that the darkness seemed more intense than any she had ever known and that the wind howled over the roof among the chimneys like something which wailed aloud. Then there was something worse. This was certain scufflings and scratchings and squeakings in the walls and behind the skirting boards. She knew what they meant because Becky had described them. They meant rats and mice who were either fighting with each other or playing together. Once or twice she even heard sharp toed feet scurrying across the floor, and she remembered in those afterdays, when she recalled things, that when first she heard them, she started up in bed and sat trembling, and when she lay down again, covered her head with the bedclothes. The change in her life did not come about gradually, but was made all at once. She must begin as she is to go on, Miss Minchin said to Miss Amelia. She must be taught at once what she is to expect. Mariette had left the house the next morning. The glimpse Sarah caught of her sitting room as she passed its open door showed her that everything had been changed. Her ornaments and luxuries had been removed, and a bed had been placed in a corner to transform it into a new pupil's bedroom. When she went down to breakfast, she saw that her seat at Miss Minchin's side was occupied by Lavinia, and Miss Minchin spoke to her coldly. "'You will begin your new duty, Sarah,' she said." by taking your seat with the younger children at a smaller table. You must keep them quiet and see that they behave well and do not waste their food. You ought to have been down earlier. Lottie has already upset her tea. That was the beginning. 
and from day to day the duties given to her were added to. She taught the younger children French and heard their other lessons, and these were the least of her labors. It was found that she could be made use of in numberless directions. She could be sent on errands at any time and in all weathers. She could be told to do things other people neglected. The cook and the housemaids took their tone from Miss Minchin and rather enjoyed ordering about the young one who had been made so much fuss over for so long. They were not servants of the best class and had neither good manners nor good tempers, and it was frequently convenient to have at hand someone on whom blame could be laid. During the first month or two, Sarah thought that her willingness to do things as well as she could and her silence under reproof might soften those who drove her so hard. In her proud little heart, she wanted them to see that she was trying to earn her living and not accepting charity. But the time came when she saw that no one was softened at all, and the more willing she was to do as she was told, the more domineering and exacting careless housemaids became, and the more ready a scolding cook was to blame her. If she had been older, Miss Minchin would have given her the bigger girls to teach and saved money by dismissing an instructress. But while she remained and looked like a child, she could be made more useful as a sort of little superior errand girl and maid of all work. An ordinary errand boy would not have been so clever and reliable. Sarah could be trusted with difficult commissions and complicated messages. She could even go and pay bills, and she combined with this the ability to dust a room well and to set things in order. Her own lessons became things of the past. She was taught nothing, and only after long and busy days spent in running here and there at everybody's orders was she grudgingly allowed to go into the deserted schoolroom with a pile of old books and study alone at night. If I do not remind myself of the things I have learned, perhaps I may forget them, she said to herself. I am almost a scullery maid, and if I am a scullery maid who knows nothing, I shall be like poor Becky. I wonder if I could quite forget and begin to drop my H's and not remember that Henry VIII had six wives. One of the most curious things in her new existence was her changed position among the pupils. Instead of being a sort of small royal personage among them, she no longer seemed to be one of their number at all. She was kept so constantly at work that she scarcely ever had an opportunity of speaking to any of them and she could not avoid seeing that Miss Minchin preferred that she should live a life apart from that of the occupants of the schoolroom. I will not have her forming intimacies and talking to the other children, that lady said. Girls like a grievance, and if she begins to tell romantic stories about herself, she will become an ill-used heroine, and parents will be given a wrong impression. It is better that she should live a separate life, one suited to her circumstances. I am giving her a home, and that is more than she has any right to expect from me. Sarah did not expect much, and was far too proud to continue to be intimate with girls who evidently felt rather awkward and uncertain about her. The fact was that Miss Minchin's pupils were a set of dull, matter-of-fact young people. They were accustomed to being rich and comfortable, and as Sarah's frocks grew shorter and shabbier and queerer looking, and it became an established fact that she wore shoes with tolls in them and was sent out to buy groceries and carry them through the streets in a basket on her arm when the cook wanted them in a hurry, they felt rather as if, when they spoke to her, they were addressing an underservant. 
to think that she was the girl with the diamond mines, Lavinia commented. She does look an object, and she's queerer than ever. I never liked her much, but I can't bear that way she has now of looking at people without speaking, just as if she was finding them out. I am, said Sarah promptly when she heard of this. That's what I look at some people for. I like to know about them. I think them over afterward. The truth was that she had saved herself annoyance several times by keeping her eye on Lavinia, who was quite ready to make mischief, and would have been rather pleased to have made it for the ex-show pupil. Sarah never made any mischief herself or interfered with anyone. She worked like a drudge. She tramped through the wet streets, carrying parcels and baskets. She labored with the childish inattention of the little one's French lessons. As she became shabbier and more forlorn-looking, she was told that she had better take her meals downstairs. She was treated as if she was nobody's concern, and her heart grew proud and sore, but she never told anyone what she felt. "'Soldiers don't complain,' she would say between her small, shut teeth. "'I am not going to do it. I will pretend this is part of a war.' But there were hours when her child heart might almost have broken with loneliness, but for three people. The first, it must be owned, was Becky. Just Becky. Throughout all that first night spent in the garret, she had felt a vague comfort in knowing that on the other side of the wall, in which the rats scuffled and squeaked, there was another young human creature. And during the nights that followed, the sense of comfort grew. They had little chance to speak to each other during the day, each had her own tasks to perform, and any attempt at conversation would have been regarded as a tendency to loiter and lose time. "'Don't mind me, miss,' Becky whispered during the first morning. "'If I don't say nothing polite, someone'd be down on us if I did. "'I mean, please and thank you and beg pardon, but I doesn't to take time to say it.' But before daybreak, she used to slip into Sarah's attic and button her dress and give her such help as she required before she went downstairs to light the kitchen fire. And when night came, Sarah always heard the humble knock at her door, which meant that her handmaid was ready to help her again if she was needed. During the first weeks of her grief, Sarah felt as if she were too stupefied to talk, so it happened that some time passed before they saw each other much or exchanged visits. Becky's heart told her that it was best that people in trouble should be left alone. The second of the trial of comforters was Ermengarde, but odd things happened before Ermengarde found her place. Well, that's the end of our chapter for today. Well, the first part of it. What do you think the book means when it says that it took Ermengarde some time before she found her place? We'll see on Thursday. Since it's almost June, let's hear a jingle about May. I know, it doesn't make sense now, but it will when I finish the jingle. This is the 13th jingle, and it's called An April Joke. Oh, it was a merry, gladsome day when the April Fool met the Queen of May. She had roguish eyes and golden hair, and they were a mischief-making pair. They planned the funniest kind of a joke on the poor, long-suffering mortal folk. And a few mysterious words he said, his fool's cap close to her flower-crowned head. Then he laughed till he made his cap bells ring, at the thought of the topsy-turvy spring. "'Tis a fair exchange,' he said, with a wink. "'It is,' she said, "'and what do you think?' "'The flowers that should bloom in the month of May, 
every one of them came on an April day, and they looked for April showers in vain, but all through May it did nothing but rain. Now do you understand why I read this jingle today? Did it rain a lot this month where you live? Or did the flowers all come out in April? Also, please, please, please send me synonyms of the word big. So far, I only got two suggestions and thanks to a listener who sent them. I'm running out of options, guys. I need help. And that's the end of our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back on Thursday when we will hear the second part of our eighth chapter. Have a great week. Jumbo thanks to Epidemic Sound for the songs and sound you heard today and to Project Gutenberg for the books we read. Music